0: So good afternoon for this afternoon's Q&A session and I'd like to invite us as much as possible to make this meditation as we listen or as we speak how can we engage in that to make that part of the practice to develop meditative qualities like mindfulness and possibly even concentration while we speak or listen so the space is open whoever wants to ask or say something i assume there are some microphones around okay
1: good afternoon um i've got a very short question but i need to give you a little bit of background to the question um i facilitate a um mindfulness group for men who suffer from or live with um, combat stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I find it quite easy. Um, we've made quite a lot of progress um, with regards to um, cultivating awareness in the moment, um, and we have a series of exercises. I've got to stress that um, whilst I do by stealth teach samatha and vipassana and meta meditation, to them. Um, it's not overtly a meditation group. Um, it is there to cultivate awareness for the conditions that they live with. Um, and there's a number of exercises that I encourage them to do um, as a result, and which i picked up from um, very much in sort of like this tradition, uh, and also, I have to admit, um, the first Karate Kid movie, um, which is basically um, do simple exercises, like sweep, um, or paint a fence, or wax on, wax off, that kind of thing, um, in order to actually really ground them. Um, But unfortunately, they all carry with them. There's nine um, people who have combat stress, uh, one police officer, and uh, two paramedics. They all carry with them moments That might now be 15 getting on for 20 years old but they carry those moments with them Um, how can I encourage them to leave those moments not um, let them go but let them be they're never going to get rid of them which is recognize that the that moment is gone and to a certain extent it's Cloudy because if you have three people together from that same moment, they'll all have a different interpretation of of that moment but um, I I lost one um, Not quite a year ago Um, He couldn't get over his moments and he committed suicide so How do I I mean I, I encourage them to give up alcohol completely alcohol and drugs just give give them up um, I don't sort of, you know, say you've got to leave if you, got, if, you, if you drink. But there's certain triggers throughout the course of the year that will naturally push them. Um, we have bonfire night here, which is a nightmare for all of those who've been in combat, um, or New Year's Eve, that kind of thing. But I, I, I need to find a way to actually let them give up the moment, or the moments um, that is causing them combat stress.
0: I would say, luckily, maybe none or very few of us in the room here have personal experience with combat stress or this kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's very difficult for us to really assume what that is like. That memories, that pain, that trauma, so mindfulness as you know can do a lot with this but i do assume that these men also have some other therapeutical support because Hmm? because i would assume that would be really really helpful Uh, you know some of them some of them do
1: but um unfortunately it's um there's not that much provision um, for people um Especially if they leave the armed forces, um, and especially if they're in the ambulance service or in the police service they they are not interested whatsoever in supporting them
0: mm-hmm. and as you know, as you make helpful suggestions like giving up alcohol, if people are not ready for that, you cannot force them you know or you know maybe uh, seek out a suitable therapist or therapeutical approach. you can do as much as you can do in terms of being patient, kind, as much as possible, understand, put yourself in their shoes. But then also, if you can't alleviate the suffering, equanimity comes in at that point. And one quality of equanimity is also the ability to wait. Things might change, you know, not despair, you know, in your own pain to that, seeing that pain, experiencing that pain, being with that pain. But can you maintain a sense of balance and open heart to these people? That's what as as comes to mind right now.
2: Hi, uh, This might seem a bit of a silly question. I'm having great trouble framing it. But um, I've always wondered, whenever I come to the monastery, I'm tired most of the time because of getting up so early in the morning, and uh, you know, meditating all day, and I just wondered, what is the benefit of uh, rising so early in the morning, and kind of being in that perpetual state of, of tiredness? I mean, here it, here it's five o'clock in Thailand; it's three o'clock in the morning. and <laughs> That's even worse. I, I just—is there a purpose to it? And if so, what is that? <laughs>
0: I mean, first of all, welcome in the club of the people who are being tired. <laughs> if you have your eyes open at times, you will see quite a few of us struggling with that at times. Now, for some, it's in early in the morning, for some, it's in the after the meals, for some, it's in the evening. Generally, the idea of getting up early in the morning, in the time of the Buddha in Asia, that's a time when it's cool, and also when the mind is often quite rested and quiet. You know, the busyness of the day has not yet uh you know, come into the mind. And I remember my teacher in Thailand, Ajim pointed out that was also the time where the Buddha uh had his awakening experience, where he became the Buddha. So that's the general idea, you know, like get up early in the morning when it's cool, when it's quiet also, before the activeness of the village or other people noises uh come up. And that's Turns out to be a skillful thing in Asia. You know, again, here we try to adapt, and as you said, you know, in Thailand, in the forest monasteries, they get up at three. Here, it's you know, have the first morning sit at five, so get up at four or four thirty, whatever. Uh, if you find that a struggle, you know, have you can you can have compassion with yourself first of all when you are in that uh, situation. You know? Can you try to meditate with eyes open? And really pay attention to your posture often when we are already very tired and mm-hmm. you know already the <laughs> the head is going down, we're slouching, then it's difficult but and if it really gets worse, even feel free to stand up that's fine as well mm-hmm. and in your personal routine, if you find it more easy you know to stay up uh, longer in the evening, that's fine if you are at home you know? but here of course, due to the retreats schedule, we have to adapt and follow the same schedule. So, patience and kindness, these are the big attitudes.
3: Um, Good afternoon. I have a question. I was... um, I know I'm very much identified with my family, like I'm... usually I'm worrying a lot about them, and it's getting more and more easy, like in the meditation sessions, to to be present and just to be in the moment but I'm, I'm noticing that when I go to sleep I'm really more present in my dreams and I keep dreaming so much about them but I, I mean I cannot like change what I'm dreaming at least I don't know yet how so I was wondering like what is dreaming and is it just like re- reflecting my my ego clinging to that or is it a process or because I, I notice that when I want to get up, I'm so much in my dream that it's so hard to get up because I'm falling asleep again and I keep dreaming about them and then I'm waking up and I'm thinking, oh, but now you should get up and go to the meditation. So it's, it's somehow, you know, half of the day, like the, during the day I'm present and at night it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> gets back.
0: So, as far as I'm aware, in the Theravada tradition, there's no direct teachings on dreaming or so. Uh, I mean, there's an encouragement, you know, to maintain mindfulness as much as possible up to the moment when you fall asleep mm-hmm. or the moment you awake. Sometimes, you know, meditation teachers ask, do you know do you fall asleep with an inhalation or with an exhalation? <laughs> <laughs> or when you wake up, you know? <laughs> And in the Tibetan tradition, I think, they have a practice called lucid dreaming, but I don't know much about it, so I can't tell. But uh, one effect of mindfulness training or meditation might be that you are more aware of those dreams, you know. So this might be what you're experiencing, that you are much more noticing how active the mind is in sleep, you know. Most of us, unless we are in this very deep uh, uh, sleeping period, we are dreaming. Most of the time, most of us don't remember. You know, but so, you might notice right now you remember more. You know, The content, you know, if it's about family or attachments, there are worse things to dream about, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so again, kindness and noticing. But do you notice you're noticing now more that you are dreaming than before, the content? So that might be a side effect, benefit of the meditation.
3: Thank you.
4: Ajahn, I have a question on communities and um, in your experience over the years, um, for all of us like lay people in communities, what advice you give for um, like what what are the causes and conditions for it to flourish and grow or causes and conditions where you've seen in the past that were a hindrance and like what, you know, what, what like learning can we take? You know, as as lay practitioners, from that in terms of what to cultivate and what like what to be careful about.
0: Very good question. Of course, Uh, like you know, the Buddha praises the quality of the Kalyanamita, the spiritual friend, spiritual friendship, to the highest degree that he says. You know, it's the whole of the spiritual life, and how much can we bring this into community? partly it's about our own maturity and i think it's also when i watch over the years a good teacher or leader attracts you know community spirit and often in the forest tradition there's a lot of emphasis besides community also on solitude and somehow this monastic life in this tradition often attracts more people who are interested in solitude you know than rather than communal activities. Of course, there is place for community, like the communal practice or retreat times. But, as you know, the Buddha emphasizes quite a bit to be silent also, you know. And, as I'm quite interested myself in community, I was at times quite disappointed, you know, how little community spirit is lived. But that's, you know, due to the personal inclinations of people, you know. and. I try to establish a place now myself, and I find it also difficult to find like-minded people. You know? So that question I really share, and I don't have the proper answer. You know? It's the leader of the community, the abbot or abbess, often kind of forms an inclination of the uh, members of the community. You know?
5: I'm just at the moment observing kind of a lot of sort of certain types of stresses Related to um, living in a outside in the urban environment, to work, you know, I'm not in the countryside, and um, what comes with that is a sense a lot of pushing to try and you know make things work, you know, as I imagine I have to to you know to keep things ticking over. So the question is, how can we live as a successful failure in the world? I've sort of come up with that's the solution, but um, yeah, yet to be interested to hear how you would approach living successfully in the world as a fail- as a successful failure in the sense of you know not not attaching too much to some of the pressures, but managing to keep it all ticking along. Does that makes sense. <laughs>
0: i think that's a big question which also applies for us wherever we live in the community in the monastery you know how do we live skillfully how do we really live as practice you know watching our attachments our failures and again how do we relate to these failures or what we judge as failures you know can we bring a sense of patience to it a kind of a sense of beginner's mind you know and you know, when you don't live in a uh, spiritual community, can you find like-minded people, you know, groups, which uh, local sanghas or so, which, you know, sanghas in terms of meditation groups or so, you know. And I know you have that in the place where you live. And like-minded people, the power of friendship, you know. And then, of course, finding opportunities where you, maybe can go on retreats or visit monasteries or centers or teachers, which uplifts you, you know, really engaging in Dhamma exchange, dialogue, discussions, and so on. And again, kindness Mm -hmm. with yourself, with others who might cause you difficulties, and patience, the Buddha said, patience is the supreme or the highest practice. Mm -hmm. Cannot be stressed enough, I'm afraid.
5: Thank you.
6: Hello, Ajahn. Um, I'm just curious about something. Um, I come from a Tibetan tradition. Sorry to impose that on all of you, but <laughs> and uh, in that tradition, uh, we are uh, very aware about the karma that you 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 keep um, creating with speech, body, and mind every minute, every throughout the day. And we have the practice um, of Vajrasattva, you know, to to kind of uh, ameliorate the karma or recognize what we did wrong and uh, try you know, to take the motivation uh, to refrain from doing the same thing over and over again now, I'm not very familiar with the Theravadan tradition do you have something similar in this tradition? and if yes, what it is?
0: especially about speech when you mention Vajrasarpa or?
6: sorry, it's about speech and mind uh, it's a Tantric pa- practice, but it's like atonement, you know, as soon as you caught yourself um, doing something, you have to kind of purify. Uh, to make,
0: uh, we don't have in Theravada like, you know, like you have in the Tibetan tradition, the Vajrasattva, hundred-syllable mantras or something like that. Yeah. But often, like what we, this Dhamma Chakrabhavatana Sutta, we recite in the morning, where many times the Noble Eightfold Path is mentioned, you know, that's the foundation of that path or practice is really the sealer, the morality or living harmlessly towards yourself and others, you know, which consists of right speech, you know, really not lying, not backbiting, not harsh speech, not gossip, and right action. You really remember the first evening, we also You were invited to take the eight precepts. That's the foundation of harmlessness, you know. Not, uh, you know, stealing, respecting the property of others, no sexual misconduct, uh, no taking drinks, drugs, these kind of things which pollute the mind. And then also what is mentioned there is the right livelihood. You know, of course, uh, the non-killing, the the non-harming generally. So by paying attention to that, and refining your practices on that. And when you acknowledge you have done wrong, you acknowledge that, you know, like as a monastic community, every fortnight we do confession, sometimes more often, we really acknowledge, oh, I have done wrong, you know. I acknowledge, I bring this into my mind, into my recollection, I acknowledge and ask, you know, on one hand to do better in the future, and also to really, if I know I have done harm, can I ask forgiveness with the other person? The power of uh, asking for forgiveness is also very much stressed in the Theravada tradition. But
6: my curiosity is: what did the Buddha say about it? Because in Tibetan Buddhism, as I said before, we get to hear a lot of Nagarjuna and <laughs> Thich and we very little about what the actual Buddha words were, you know, with regard to to atonement. Or
0: with regards to. It? With,
6: when you, you catch a karma, not, create, not creating bad karma, of course, we do take the precept but sometimes we fail. So when you fail, just to recognize it is enough.
0: Uh, right. One of the practices the Buddha recommends is also recollecting your own virtues. You really basically take that up as a meditation practice to recollect, you know, how is my practice on you know, non-harming, non-killing. How is my practice on respecting the property, not stealing, on sexual misconduct, on right speech, on not taking substances which, you know, pollute the mind? You really recollect, and the idea of this is that you rejoice, that the mind becomes calm, tranquil, and mindful, you know? It's not, and even if you discover things of, you know, wrong behavior, unskillful behavior, that's a chance to, you know, do better. Okay, thank you. lift yourself.
7: Hello, Adrian. I noticed, especially on retreat, that um, when engaging with another, that sense of self really consolidates. And I know you're very interested in the, or involved with the, insight dialogue, and I don't know anything about that, so I wondered if you'd like to share something of insight dialogue as I expect it relates to that fact of engaging with another and how strong that sense of self comes and the um, that open... Um, that sort of open, light, spacious awareness is lost.
0: Yeah, this is a big topic, but maybe to keep it quite brief uh, the challenge for us, most of us, if not all of us, is really how we bring meditation into our daily life, especially when we interact with others, you know, when it comes to speaking and listening. So, in inside dialogue, there's kind of six aspects of the practice or guidelines. The first one is called pause, which is nothing else but mindfulness. Really basically invite yourself to pause, to stop, to come back to the present moment, to feel the body. What's happening right now? Very familiar to us. Second approach to practice is relax. And that's the invitation to be at ease and in peace with whatever is right now. It's a kind of invitation for the mind to calm with whatever is. You know, when we can influence in a certain way to be more relaxed in the body or mind, we do that. But often we are faced with situations we can't control. You know, so how can we be at ease and peace, accept, allow, receive how it is right now? So this is an aspect of samatha, of concentration or collectedness of mind with whatever we experience right now. The third aspect of that practice would be practicing open, And that is really, as the Buddha stresses, you know, developing mindfulness internally, which we often do in traditional silent practice, but then also develop mindfulness externally, and both internally and externally. In the discourses on the foundations of mindfulness, Satipatthana, the Buddha stresses again and again to establishing mindfulness internally, externally, both internally and externally. And the idea with open is not that we get carried away with the external, but really, you know, open to external sense experiences with a clear foundation in the internal. So we are not get lost uh, in sensual experiences. And when we notice, you know, we are get carried away, then we focus more on the internal. The other aspect of the practice is also really paying attention to arising and passing. In in Siddhartha, that's called trust emergence. Basically, it's nothing else but paying attention to anicca, impermanence, arising, change, passing, you know, appearing, change, vanishing. So that's a key of insight practice, any vipassana practice, you know, and in a way you have also the other characteristics implicit in that dukkha and anatta, you know, the unsatisfactoriness and the non-self or empty nature of any experiences or phenomena. And then when it comes to speaking and listening, really invite, encourage yourself to listen deeply. Also Ajahn Chah, you know, encouraged us to listen with the heart. When you pay attention, when you listen to somebody, you know, in in dialogue, one-to-one or even in a bigger group, you listen also to the voice. Actually, the voice and body language communicates much, much more than the words itself. We listen a lot with the eyes. We listen a lot with the ears, the voice, you know. So, to really pay attention to that, listen deeply, what does that really mean? And when we really ask, what does it mean to speak the truth? Of course, it's much more powerful when you speak the truth when it's embodied when you are really in contact with what's happening in the body and mind right here and right now, that's much more powerful, you know. Like when you speak in a way, I feel so inspired being here this afternoon. Nice words, right? But what is, if I'm really, you know, making an effort to be in contact with what is, and I really feel inspired, you know, being here, being with you engaging in dialogue and hopefully being of some use we listen and many we listen and speak on many different levels and it's quite fascinating you know if you pay attention to the details and refinements of this it's a very powerful practice and when we actually meditate with somebody else in dialogue we can notice that the presence, the mindfulness of the other person, can really help center our own mindfulness. You know, because when we sit in silent meditation, we know that the mind can do all kinds of things, it can be very concentrated, very calm, very mindful, or not. But when we are engaging in dialogue, you know, the presence, the practice of the other person, can really help us to bring us back into our own practice or maintain the, our own practice. That's a brief description.
4: Bhante, uh, could you kindly give some guidance on how to do mindfulness of feelings meditation? Uh, preferably according to the Satipatthana Sutta? Which Sutta? Uh, according to the Satipatthana Sutta? Mm.
0: So, generally, I mean, first of all, when we talk about feelings, the English word feelings. It's quite a complex word, you know, like often we mean emotions by that. So when the Buddha talks about Vedana, sometimes it's translated as kind of sense impingement. The moment we have a sensual experience, it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Often people refer to that as neutral, but the Buddha, you know, specifically made the effort to say neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So that's what we are invited to pay attention here. So in the Satipatthana practice, foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha encourages simply really to notice is uh, the Vedana tone, the sensual impact or impingement, is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, no. And then sometimes, to be a bit more precise, sometimes the Buddha encourages to distinguish between bodily Or mental, you know, Vedana, feeling impingements. Sometimes also there's an encouragement to distinguish between kind of worldly and kind of beyond the world, kind of very refined states in the mind, you know. But basically the practice is really knowing what is experiencing like. Is it pleasant, unpleasant? or neither pleasant or unpleasant. And some people say then it's neutral, you know. I try to avoid the word neutral because for me neutral is also a a kind of classification. This description of neither pleasant nor unpleasant is really pointing to this, I really don't know what it's like, you know, so the mind is not sure. And generally, of course, with a pleasant feeling tone, the mind is inclined to develop grasping, greed, you know, attachment and with unpleasant experiences we tend to lean towards aversion resistance hate not liking you know wanting to get away so we can observe that also those, those dynamics you know so when eating uh, for example
4: if uh, the food uh, if you notice that the food is uh, really nice or that it tastes good then uh, even at that point, are you able to practice uh, this meditation? Like, is that a pleasant feeling?
0: Yes, yes, yes. Or when it's unpleasant feeling, you notice, you know, because often when the Buddha gives these four categories of the Satipatthana practice, you know, like (coughs) body, feelings, mental states, and dhammas, or phenomena, especially feeling is so much connected to other experiences, you know. The moment we feel something, we have a perception around this often, and then we react upon it. You know, with actions, sankaras, with karma, basically. You know, so when you have nice food, can you just leave it? It's just a pleasant vedana. Or if it's an unpleasant vedana, can we just leave it at that and not make a story out of it? Not create extra karma, extra actions. Did you note? Uh,
4: do you note it, Bante? Uh, as such in the mind, like, uh, do you note it like pleasant feeling or is it like clear comprehension? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean there are certain meditation techniques which actually encourage to label also, you know, like, uh, you know, but that's not what Ajahn Chah or in the Thai Forest religion usually is, is, is done, but you can do that, you know, kind of pay special attention, pleasant, unpleasant, you know, neither, if that's helpful. Good afternoon, Ajahn. In the same context, in Satipatthana Sutta, the fourth one about Dhamma, can you expound on that a little bit more? So Dhamma vipassana thats you can say in all encompassing practicing practice. In the first three, you can say whatever is not covered in the first three, that's included in the fourth one. You know. Uh, generally, a very skillful, I mean, there's different versions also in the shorter discourse on the Satipatthana teachings or on the longer discourse. So generally, it's recognizing the five hindrances, simply knowing, are they present or not? Is there greed? Is there hate? Version? Is there sloth and talk? Is there restlessness, agitation? Is there doubt? Or is it absent? Often we pay a lot of attention when these are there, the difficulties or challenges, hindrances. But do we notice, like right now, as you sit, as you listen, do you notice the absence or presence of these hindrances? And when they are absent, oh, do you notice that? The mind is maybe calm right now, attentive. You know, so that's, and then also it's an encouragement to investigate or know what are the conditions that make those hindrances arise or pass away. So to get an understanding of, you know, cause and effect, basically, what are supportive conditions for these hindrances to arise and fade away? So what kind of effort can we make that they, you know, fade more quickly? Also, it's an encouragement to practice, you know, general awareness, like similar to what I said earlier about the open practice, you know, internal sense organs, external sense objects, you know. Where is our internal awareness? With the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and the mind, and the external, you know, sights, smells, tastes, touch, uh, mental objects, and one I forgot? (laughs) Sounds, yeah? So really noticing the internal ayatanas and the external, you know? And then also, one other powerful thing which the Buddha mentions is the development of the awakening factors, those seven, you know? The mindfulness, investigation of Dhammas, to uh, uh, energy, effort, rapture, joy, calmness, you know, pasadi, uh, concentration, and equanimity. And to get to know really how these factors can be developed also. Not just in noticing when they are absent, but or present but how can we develop these awakening factors which support you know clarity of mind understanding and you know in the longer version the buddha mentions also the four noble truths you know when you look at that discourse we recite in the morning you have the whole teaching covered there so whatever we experience can we pick that up to know Aglumpur Sumedho stresses, you know, the one who knows. Can we trust in this awareness? Not the objects itself, but the quality of awareness, the quality of knowing. So that's a lot of this uh, force foundation, Dhamma Nupasana. It's a big, big topic. Thank you. I have a little sequel to that. In these Satipatthana Sutta, do you practice that sequentially or do you take them one at a time or randomly? It depends. Uh, it might make sense to focus your practice on certain aspects, like especially, you know, when the mind is pretty active, busy, the kaya nupasana, the foundation on the body is really the foundation, the anchor. and to notice the feeling tone of the experience needs a bit more refinement and mental states also emotions you can say it needs also more refinement so you can say it gets more refined as the practice continues you know so it might make sense to focus on certain things but then as you practice you know whatever comes up you take that up as as practice you know there are certain approaches in meditation where, you know, they stress mainly on, you know, foundation of the the body, or at times foundation on the feelings, or the mental states, but even so we can talk about it in separate ways, but in experience they are one. So, even if you focus on one area, that's fine, but you will (laughs) indirectly also experience the other foundations. So how to maintain a skillful practice, making an effort to focus on one thing, but also being really clear that these categories are only of relative value. They try to describe experience, you know, four foundations, but life, as we experience is one. So it can be divided, or when the Buddha talks about the five khandas, for instance, yeah? That's also one aspect, uh, you know, to look at life, the five heaps or groups of attachment, you know, body, feelings, perceptions, activities, mental activities, formations, and consciousness. Again, it's very helpful to look at these individually to try to deepen one's practice, but in experience, they are one. You cannot really separate body and mind, you know. The moment you talk about feeling, Vedana, you have also often the perception there and the sankhara immediately or sense contact you know hello, hello.
2: Uh, just a, a a question on the nature of worry really and how to uh let go of worry oh uh, i know quite a lot about worrying because <laughs> i've done it quite a lot in my life and uh but I also realise it hasn't necessarily got a positive aspect. But I do realise that worry, having been, uh, it's probably been a primary motivating force in my life. I think it, I think fear probably is, maybe for a lot of people. Like for example, I realise that uh, maybe something like the fear of poverty, for example, or the worry of the worry of being poor, becoming poor, can actually be a force enabling you not to become poor if that's your you know if that's a primary concern or for example maybe you have a fear of being alone and that fear of being alone uh, creates a backdrop and, and drives you to remain in a marriage for example and I guess what I'm asking really is how I think worry speaking personally realize that it has been such a motivational force, probably ever since childhood, and that worry is something that can help people remain safe and relatively secure in their life to a certain extent. How can you how can you, how can I (laughs) how can I confidently, or anybody really, how can anyone be confident in letting go of worry and Obviously, in the Christian tradition, not being a Christian myself, I never have been a Christian, but I imagine that many Christians will put their faith in something else, probably in, in Christianity, for example. I don't feel I've got that necessarily in Buddhism, because Buddhism turns the mirror upon yourself, really, and, and asks you to be your own, uh, your own, your own salvation really, you know, to, to kind of be a mirror unto yourself. So I guess what I'm asking in a very long-winded way is how can I confidently let go of worry?
0: How can I put confidence in something else? Let me start by bringing up memory when I think His Holiness Dalai Lama was asked about this, you know, in his very humorous sense, he said, if you worry, you die, if you don't worry, you die. So, why worry? <laughs> Now that sounds very nice and easy, but you know how to put it into practice. You know that's exactly your question. Yeah. Uh, in my own experience, again, when I notice I'm worrying, how is my relationship to that in the first place? Do I want to get rid of it? Like, is there that aversion, that resistance, which often makes the worry stronger? Right. So again, can we rest in the body experience when you worry? How does it actually feel? In how do you notice that and if you do that you kind of try to cultivate a different attitude a different relationship to that not being you know totally caught in your mental constructs mental activities but really being grounded in the body and then another question might be you know where do you find some kinds of balance or security or refuge you know in life, orientation, you can say, you know. Does taking refuge to Buddha, Dharma, Sangha make sense for you? And if, how, how does that speak to you, you know? One foundation, which Lung Sumedho stresses again and again, now is the knowing, this awareness, the knowing of, oh, there is worry. And can that knowing lessen a little bit that grip of identification of attachment you know i am worrying rather than you know oh is that at you know experience i am worrying or is there a clear knowing oh there is worry in the mind it's a very different experience when we just notice there is worry you know and then also what i said before with uh, certain experience with hindrances or so do you notice the times when you're not worrying Actively acknowledging those times when we are free from worry, what we often think and ponder upon that way our heart is inclines or conditions our mind or heart. so when we often or mostly pay attention to when we worry, you know this is where we are conditioning our mind. But right now, for instance, do you notice absence of worry or not, and do you acknowledge that you know, and again, this magic practice of being kind and patient, yeah? Sometimes rationalizing, you know, the worries don't help very much. It can be helpful, but it's sometimes when we reflect in, the, in this in an unskillful way, it can put more pressure onto us, you know? Oh, it's so stupid to have these thoughts again and again, you know, so that way you make it more difficult actually for yourself, well then, okay, this is the old habit and you just observe it You know, be aware of it, be mindful of it, and it will pass, for sure. But, you know, that lighter attitude with less clinging, and less clinging means often with less aversion. Sometimes letting things be allows it much more to pass away than that resistance, you know, I don't want it, you know. That's the general approach. Like right now, What state is the mind in, and the body? Can we pay attention to the absence of, you know, hindrances, unskillful mind states? Can we rejoice in the present moment knowing?
5: Slightly less uh whatever question, I wondered about your new monastery that you, you're on, you've set up would you, could you tell us a bit about how your approach to it is different because you said something about wanting to encourage a slightly different community approach I think you said and with your insight, dialogue, experience
0: yeah so you know that earlier question about building community My vision of this community, I mean, the name of the monastery would be like vihara and the idea, and I don't know really, really how to to manage this, to be honest, but the vision is very beautiful, I think. I mean, like five pillars or foundations of practice, like one is a traditional silent meditation, then the Dhamma study, which, you know, in this context of Theravada tradition means mostly the discourses of the Pali canon. And then an interpersonal practice, which could be something like dialogue or dhamma study or a practice called dhamma contemplation where we meditate together on a text, where really speaking and listening is part of the meditation practice. Then an area which I would like to call personal development, and this is, by that I mean practices and teachings which you don't find directly in the Dhamma Vinaya of the Buddha, but which help to understand Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. So that they need to be compatible with the Dharma in terms of ethics, you know, it can come from a maybe therapeutic background, from a medical background, maybe from a political, I don't know, you know, there's many practices and teachings which might be quite helpful which to understand Dukkha and the end of Dukkha, you know, and then whatever happens in the community, which is of relevance, can we try to make that part of the practice, you know, to integrate that, you know? Rather than, you know, oh, this is difficult, I don't want to look at that, and, you know, use the big carpets to sweep the dust under that, you know? So that's my idea or vision of community, and how to put this into practice, I, <laughs> Trust, but I don't have the answer. You know, it's it's all so fresh, and so I'm not sure if there will be. Uh, in July, somebody comes to live with me, but we'll see how it goes. You know,
5: is that the first person who's living with you? Hmm? Is that the first person in July? Second. Second, including you. Hmm. Yeah, that's two. Good. That sounds really interesting. Hmm. I'll come in a year's time when you've got a whole community going and I'll see what it's like. <laughs> and then bring it back here. Will you have women, able to have women there?
0: I need to first have a man in the house and a woman can stay.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh,
0: Tanajan,
1: a general question for you about meditation. Um, You mentioned earlier when feeling a bit drowsy, opening the eyes can be useful. Uh, I often find that meditating with the eyes open is more useful than with the eyes closed. (laughs) It seems that the eyes closed, sort of, you get some really weird thoughts into your mind more often than when you're just looking out in front of you. So, as far as you're concerned, or as far as as the Buddha's concerned, is there any difference? Uh, Is one more conducive towards uh, uh, an improved awareness than the other? Uh, What are your thoughts there?
0: The Buddha didn't mention, you know, when like sitting down cross-legged, you know, focusing on the breath or whatever, he didn't mention anything about the eyes, you know, having your eyes closed or open. Uh, Definitely, as you probably know, and I know very well, (laughs) when the mind is sleepy and the eyes are closed, you know, it's, it's very pleasant and nice to go into that, you know, downward spiral of sleepiness, you know. In some traditions, they actually recommend to uh, practice with open eyes. And then the idea is, you know, just have them slightly open and maybe not gaze fixing, you know, but have them relaxed, whatever, two, three yards in front of you, you know. And in some traditions also, they kind of recommend you just have a kind of open wide gaze, you know, this more in the Tibetan or Dzogchen tradition, you know. So really see what works. You know, in different situations, different things might be more beneficial. You know? But the idea that you have to close your eyes, uh, you cannot find in the texts of the Theravada tradition. And sometimes actually the closing the eyes might invite more active thinking at times. You know? So it might be helpful to try maybe at times to have your eyes open or slightly open. A few more minutes. Hello, Ajahn.
8: Um, I was just wondering, we hear a lot about, you know, opening up to awareness and being able to sort of let yourself sort of go into the awareness and sort of try and leave all the proliferation of mind behind. Um, And this is sort of a question of faith because in a lot of the buddhist texts and a lot in basically all buddhist traditions it's it's sort of a fact that over time um it's been influenced a lot by cultural things and um just just over time obviously it's not what the buddha originally taught like we can't fully have faith a lot of it is Can can easily date back to the time, but it's um. There's no way to be sure how genuine it really is, um. So I sort of have this issue at the moment where it's, I feel like I'm ready to sort of delve into that awareness, but I don't want to. Be almost. Like. I'm, I'm worried it'll be like self-hypnosis, you know, like just pushing all that stuff aside and maybe all this ignorance comes in. Or You sort of have to have faith that the wisdom will arise naturally by itself through the practice, and then we can see through all that stuff, but there's no way to determine that at the moment. It's, it's really about letting go. Like, How are we to think about this and how are we to push through this? Or yeah, arouse enough faith to really make that step.
0: Thank you. <laughs> I'd like to encourage you to notice the use of language. Push away, or maybe an inner attitude, you know, I, whatever I experience is wrong or I need to get rid of. Did you ever hear this in the instructions? Yeah. In the practice of Satipatthana, for example, when it comes to mental states or hindrances, you know, like the, what we discussed earlier, the Buddha never, ever says you should never experience greed, hate, or delusion. But know it. Know when there's greed. Know when there's absence of greed. Know when there's hate. Know when there's absence of hate. Know when there's confusion. Know when there's absence of confusion. So these roots, greed, hate, delusion, and the, you know, uh, six roots. Greed, hate, delusion, non-greed, non-hate, non-delusion. But we often seem to have this idea, you know, when we experience certain mental states or experiences in the body, there's something wrong. And again, this practice of mindfulness, of sati, awareness, is putting the emphasis on the awareness, not on the object. Yes, we try to cultivate the wholesome as part of the practice of right effort, but really watch that attitude, you know, when there's something unpleasant, unwholesome, unskillful. Do we judge ourselves, do we create a story out of it, or can we just know it? And then over time, you notice what it's like. And this is what Lung Por again and again you know, stresses. Trust that awareness, not the content of the awareness. One brief question, if we have three minutes or so.
7: Hi, Ajahn. Uh, I'm interested about the quality of equanimity, Uh, and it seems to me that it's achievable in the silence only. Um, I'm coming from a fact that if you do not know a word in uh, another language, how could you be with the right effort or right intentions or understanding? Would you share with your own experience, if you don't understand something in Pali, for example, and there are a few interpretations, how do you deal with that? Thank you.
0: So was it a second question at the end, was it Pali words, or mainly it's about the equanimity?
7: Equanimity as a, a, a presentation of equanimity, to me it seems only when we are in silent meditation we have that quality of equanimity.
0: Okay, that's a start, you know, but again, can you be only equanimous when you are silent? A lot of our life is not silent. It depends what you do, you know, how you live, you know. So this is really, how can we bring even-mindedness, the vicissitudes of life, the ups and downs, you know. Can we be equanimous, balanced, peaceful? Like what I said earlier, you know, my teacher in Thailand, Arjun Buddha Dansa, he stressed the quality of equanimity is sometimes facing dukkha, suffering, which we can't change at the moment, but we have the patience to wait, not to despair. And often, you know, equanimity is taught in the context of the four Brahma-Viharas, the four divine abidings, and they really, it really goes together with the quality of kindness, friendliness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. So when you look for these three qualities, it will be much easier to develop an attitude of equanimity. When there is friendliness, when there is compassion, being in contact with the suffering of the world, not turning away from, and being also in contact with the joys, the happiness, the wonderful things in the world, the happiness of others as a source of you know, one's own happiness, that helps to develop these qualities. Very good question.
7: Thank you very much.
0: So just let's continue with half an hour, not half an hour, sorry, half a minute of silence. Thank you so much and may our practice benefit many beings we come in contact with, not just here in our body, but when we go home and live these practices in our daily lives. Thank you.